0: Hi, I'm Abigail, and this is Peak Curiosity. I present to you John Zyker, the Chair of Anthropology at Boise State University. He was so generous to spend an evening answering my random questions. Also, just a fun fact, the night after this interview, I dreamed I was emailed the invoice for his hourly rate for doing podcasts, and the bill was (laughs) $2,500. Thankfully, that was just a nightmare, and I did not have to sell my car to pay for this episode. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this half as much as I did. John, would you mind giving me just a little intro to who you are, how long you've been teaching anthropology and you know, that kind of stuff?
1: So I'm John Zyker, I'm uh, the chair of the anthropology department at Boise State. And I've been at Boise State now for 16 years. Came here in 2003. Prior to that, I had a postdoctoral fellowship at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in uh, halle under Germany. For, I was there for two years. Prior to that, I was at University of Alaska Fairbanks and um, the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, DC. And uh, I finished my PhD prior to that in uh, 1999 at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. When I was at UC Santa Barbara, I spent about three years total over a five year period um, doing my field work in uh, Northern Siberia. Wow. Yeah, so I was in Russia a lot um, and that was in the 1990s. I've taken a few trips uh, over there You know, since I've been in Boise, but the last one was in 2010. So it's been 10
0: years. Is it as cold up there as we think it is?
1: Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, one time I was um, on on a snowmobile with a friend of mine who was taking me 60 kilometers over to the next village. And um, it was minus fifty five Celsius. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it was like minus sixty five Fahrenheit.
0: Oh my! On a snowmobile.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I was on the back. I was on like I was on the sleigh, right? So I was yeah. getting no the whole time. Wow. Um, yeah, and we left, and it was it's in, it was in the winter, and um, you know in the winter there it's dark most. You know it's dark for two months straight. Actually, this was a little bit later. It already been getting light for a couple hours during the day when we left but still we did most of the traveling you know while it was dark
0: yeah and, uh,
1: I remember we got to that that village it was like four o'clock in the morning or something you know no one was you know, no one was there around we knocked on the door of the mayor's house and they're out there in their pajamas like, wow. oh yeah yeah we oh yeah, we were expecting you. You go down here and go to this place, you know.
2: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: But uh, my friend had, the week before we left, he had been on a hunting trip where he killed a wolf. And wolves are, I mean, traditionally in this area, you know, the native people do hunt wolves um, because they, the wolves kill the reindeer. Mm. The reindeer are sort of the source of life for these people. Sure. And and also, reindeer uh, wolf pelts are, you know, a good source of income. So he would killed a wolf, and you know, news had spread, and you know, he was had a new nickname, which was called Volkadov, which is like <laughs> the wolf wolf killer, I guess, or Wolf dove is like uh, to press, right? The wolf presser or something like that would be. It. So anyway, yeah, the people in the next village had heard this. And this, my friend had never been to that village. That was the other thing. We were traveling at night, in the middle of winter on a snowmobile, you know, through, you know, 90 kilometers. We had to, we went along. We didn't go to take a direct route because there are some waterways along there. So we had to kind of go around. We went up to a hunting spot that well, he knew the, the road there, but he didn't know the way, the last leg. He had never been to that village. And he was following old snowmobile trails he came across some fresh wolf tracks as we were going. And, you know, it's minus 50, but I'm dressed like, you know, the Michelin man. I had, you know, expedition weight fleece. I had down fleece, tops and bottoms. I had a parka. I still have this parka that was made by by a couple of the, the women in the community that had 15 arcs, Arctic fox pelts on
0: 15. the
1: inside. 15 arctic fox belts, yeah, so a, to get a parka big enough for me. Wow. I'm, I'm six feet tall, so they, yeah, they had to create a new pattern basically for me. So it's got arctic fox on the inside and it's got like a wool layer on the outside. And then I had another thing on top, like a poncho they called a hunt up. Yeah, Anyway, so I was, all I had was like this little <laughs> slit. <laughs> That I could look out of, and uh, oh yeah, I had my fur hats and stuff, and scarves. I had this little slit that I could see out of, and I got this horrible frostbite across the bridge of my oh, nose, no. was like peeling and bleeding for about two weeks afterwards. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so Zhenya you know, stopped. it was like, you know, feeling the wolf track to see, you know, how fresh it was, how you know, long ago this. Was. And this wolf, or there were a pair of wolves actually, had just passed. And he wanted to go after, he had his rifle with him, and he wanted to go after them, pulling me along or leaving
2: yeah.
1: me <laughs> there in the middle of the trail. I'm like, Jenya, no, that's, let's just keep going to the village. I had to convince him to just keep going to the village. Anyway, so um, yeah, I'd spent about three years up there, got to know these people really well and a lot of good friends there. But um, yeah, so that was my PhD. And then I did my undergrad at Arizona State and uh, originally I'm from South Bend, Indiana. Mm. So that's kind of,
0: gotcha. A bit about me, I may have forgotten, but did you say how long that you've been at Boise State?
1: Yeah, this is my sixteenth year, I believe.
0: Wow, nice. Yeah, you like teaching?
1: Actually, it's my seven, my seventeenth year. Anyway, wow. Uh, um, yes, I do enjoy teaching, and um, we're always, you know, trying to improve our teaching. And so when I, you know, did my PhD, I, my, I pretty much had finished my PhD. I'd TA'd, I would worked with some professors as an assistant and in graduate in graduate school, but I'd never had a class of my own. So I kind of knew what to do. Before I left Santa Barbara, I they gave me a, um, a class to teach during the summer, a cultural anthropology class, and so that was my first teaching experience, and it was pretty good. I kind of repeated what my you know, main professor did for his cultural anthropology class, and then I had so I, one of my my first job actually before Woodrow Wilson, I had a one semester job at a at a place in Pennsylvania called Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and they gave me four intro to anthropology classes to teach. So I really got you know <laughs> you know inundated in mm-hmm. in teaching there, but there wasn't much there um, wasn't much structure around you know, how we were to go about it, right? We pretty much had free reign. So when I got to Boise State, one of the things that's really great at Boise State, there's a center for teaching and learning. And that is for faculty, basically, to learn new teaching techniques, everything from designing your course to various kinds of learning activities that you can do, what's called flipping the classroom, just all these different things you can do to spice it up, make it more interesting, to improve student learning. And so I've done a lot of that over my 17 years at Boise State. I've designed, um, gosh, I don't even know how many courses I've designed now. I've designed a lot of courses. I've gone through the Course Design Institute a couple times, and I've designed five or six online courses. So there's an eCampus Center at Boise State, and they also have professional development, opportunities um, for faculty to design online courses. So I've done a, um, a lot of that about the last five years, and that's come in really handy with COVID, actually. Sure. So I feel like I'm a more effective teacher now.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll get started with what is anthropology.
1: So yeah, anthropology is you know, basically the study of humans in a general sense. So ology is sort of the science of, and anthro has to do with humans. So it's study of humans. One of our founding anthropologists, Alfred Alfred Kroeber, back in the 1930s, had said this, and it's become kind of a famous quote, anthropology is the most scientific of the humanities and the most humanistic of the sciences. Mm-hmm. So and we take a scientific approach to studying humans, but we also have to be humanistic because you know we're dealing with humans. So anthropology is usually divided up into... Four major subfields, at least currently. I mean, originally going back, you know, 150 years, it was was sort of all done together. But as the field has progressed, people have specialized in these different areas. And so, cultural anthropology that's basically what I do. I study, you know, people living today and their life ways, how they make a living, um, how they interact with the environment, how their economy works. How their worldview fits into the other things, you know, economy and relationship mm-hmm. with the environment. And I've generally worked with indigenous people in in Siberia, as I said. And then I've got a, another project, um, actually in Mozambique, so kind of the other direction, that is in the periphery of the of Gorongosa National Park, which is a one of the big biodiversity conservation areas in in Africa. It's a park that has a pretty strong connection to Boise, actually. So if you go to the Boise Zoo, um, there's a whole new Gorongosa addition to the park, to the zoo, excuse me. And that is based on the actual Gorongosa Park in um, Mozambique. And Boise State has an agreement with with the park. So I, well, I was kind of taking a break from Russia. I thought I'd, I'd go to Mozambique and get a project started there. It's easier to get to Mozambique, actually. Then northern Siberia, it takes a couple of weeks to get to northern Siberia, whereas Mozambique, you, know, you can fly to Johannesburg and then you know take a a regional flight up to uh, Bira, which is the the biggest town near Gorongosa National Park, and I can be like in the field in the chief's front yard in about three days. That's awesome. <laughs> so just kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and that's um, yeah, I mean considering. uh, people's mobility today, you know, we have, that's, you know, one of the reasons why we're seeing epidemics like we, we have right now. Anyway, uh, so cultural anthropology is the first area. The second area is also really well known as Mm archaeology. So archaeology is basically the, you know, the study of past human cultures through the material remains and the environment that those material remains are in. So, you know, we can tell, a lot about what people were doing based on what they leave and then the context, so you can kind of understand what the environment looked like mm-hmm. in past times through the context. And then the third area is called biological anthropology, and uh, biological anthropology looks at you know, humans' uh, evolution. So uh, basically, going back, you know, millions of years. So it's a really long time frame. Understanding the relationships between humans and other species, looking at genetic factors, looking at the relationship between behavior and genetic factors as well. So that's in biological anthropology. Primatology is also part of biological anthropology. And then the last area is uh, linguistic anthropology. Um, Linguistic anthropology is a little bit of a crossover with pure linguistics, but um, linguistic anthropology Actually, linguistics kind of had its start in anthropology, and then it sort of became a separate field, but there still are a lot of linguistic anthropologists. So that's kind of an overview of anthropology.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So I think I was confused. I had it in my head that anthropology was more of specifically in the really ancient humans and cultures, and oh, not okay. necessarily so much in today's world. So that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. It is. So one of the things in looking at today, looking at people's today, you know, you, it it kind of ties into the evolution of humans, because if you look at all the different cultures and there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different cultures and societies around the world. And you know, a lot of anthropologists have studied these, and there actually is a database that has hundreds of cultures, information on hundreds of cultures in it. And you can do cross cultural studies based on this database but you can see that there are certain things that are really different right mm-hmm. some things people do in some places you know really would not be very acceptable in our society whereas there's a lot of things that we do in our society that people in those places would you know roll their eyes and they'd say gosh yeah. these people are crazy <laughs> yeah you know and so uh, you know we, that's one thing about anthropology is getting that kind of that perspective that cross cultural perspective that no one culture, you know, is like number one, <laughs> you know, we have this thing, you know, in in our society, and all societies actually have this, that like we're number one kind of thing. That's, it's called ethnocentrism and uh, it's a ethnocentrism ties into kind of in-group, out-group identification and warfare and things like that. But yeah, you can see that a lot, there are a lot of different solutions to similar problems in different in a wide range of societies okay so there's a lot of diversity but on the other hand there are certain things that are found in every society so like an example is kinship and that's an area that i special specialize in so kinship is the system by which we refer to and address our relatives so it's a linguistic system so like mm-hmm. you know you refer to your Grandfather as grandpa, or you know, whatever mm-hmm. uh, term, or you refer to your cousins as cousin, and different societies do it different ways. Actually, the system, the type of kinship that that we have in the U.S. is, and in west, and generally in Western societies, is actually called the Eskimo kinship system, which is not a politically correct term, but that's what it's been called in anthropology for you know 100 years. So um, we continue to call it that. But there are other systems. So, um, for example, in the eastern uh, in the eastern U.S., there's a group of tribes called the Iroquois, uh, the Iroquois Confederacy. They have what's known as the Iroquois kinship system, and the uh, distinguishing characteristic of that system is that the offspring of same-sex aunts and al- uncles, so let's say your father's brother, your father's brother's children, are called brother and sister not cousin. Interesting. Yeah. And the same thing with on the mother's side, the mother's sister's children are called brother and sister, but the mother's brother's children, they're called by special terms. And also the father's father's sister's children are called by special terms. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So it has to do with uh, lineages and who can marry whom. And so basically the, the people who you call brother and sister are not, you're not allowed to marry those people. Even that's though they're fair. not even though they're not your direct brother and sister. <laughs> so you could have like a yeah. fifth cousin we someone we would call a fifth cousin or a tenth cousin, but they would be classified as a brother and sister. They are oh, not allowed. You're not allowed to marry them.
0: Interesting. Uh, I guess they tried to use cousin for a while and that was just too gray. So they said, No, no, we're still having <laughs> troubles with the intermarriage here. We'll just go with brother and sister. <laughs> oh, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. So um yeah there are there are only actually are only eight different systems for all the different societies around the world. There are only eight kinship systems and it's based on um the different cousin terms. So there's a a kinship system called the Sudanese kinship system. And there actually are eight different cousin terms. So you refer to your, you know, father's brother's son by one term and your <laughs>
0: you know your Yeah, wow.
1: Yeah, it, it kind of gets pretty detailed. So kinship is something in like religion is universal across different societies. So there are these universals and the universals, the reason those things are universal is because those behaviors were things that our ancestors did that helped them solve problems. And so those things became what we call species typical. They're typical for all humans, even though there's kind of slight variations. So that's, so there's all this cultural diversity, but there also are human universals that tie into human evolution and the problems that our ancestors faced. And so it does, there is a connection there.
0: What is the point of, of studying anthropology?
1: That's a great question. So the point of studying anthropology is, you know, like a lot of other social sciences in, in that it helps us understand the human condition. And by understanding the human condition, we can help or help to develop solutions to problems that we face as a, as a species. So that's one that I'd say, one of the main points of studying anthropology. So we prepare our students with a lot of different skills. So designing research projects, critical thinking, teamwork, kind of general skills that can be applied to a lot of different career paths, I would mm-hmm. say. And our students really have taken that and they run with it. I mean, we've got you know, people who work in the pharmaceutical industry. We've got people who work in, in law, community development, international development. And there are some students who go on and work in anthropology professionally. So, um, and that is more common with archeology span So students with an archeology span focus can tend to go to work for Bureau of Land Management or National Forest Service. There are laws that protect our cultural heritage, the cultural heritage, so archeological sites in federally owned or federally managed lands. And so all those agencies have archeologists that work for them to help manage all the cultural resources. So a lot of our students go to work the feds or a state or consulting companies that do contracting for the feds or the state or for tribes as well. And then like biological anthropologists, they can go into forensics, which is very, pretty popular, you know, with shows like Bones and and NCIS. There's a lot of interest in that. And those students can go to work in, let's say, you know, for sheriff's um, offices or coroner's offices or Hmm. the military also has forensics. So there's a lot of different applications. Basically anything you have with humans is something that an anthropologist can contribute to. There's a new area that we've been developing at Boise State. It's called um, user experience research. And so this is an application of anthropological methods that is used to help design products and services and programs. So it's basically any business, any for-profit, nonprofit, government government has been hiring anthropologists to help them figure out what is the best way to build this thing, whatever it is. Build this widget, or construct this website, or design this program to help serve this population. So that's a really big and growing area. Another thing our students are trained in is sort of analyzing information. So critical thinking, but also just like really analyzing it. So both from a quantitative and a qualitative perspective. And so we have a new area, um, a new emphasis in data science. And so we're training our students to not only do the analyses and kind of ask questions, learn how to ask questions, learn how to gather the data, learn how to analyze it, but also to use tools that are becoming available through machine learning, and AI to help gather data to analyze questions.
0: Interesting. What do you think about the whole idea of smartphones and stuff? What is that doing to our culture?
1: <laughs> that's that's really good. For a long time, I was sort of, I was a Luddite with regarding <laughs> cell phone technology. <laughs> and, uh, I only really got a cell phone about Uh, it's probably about five years ago now. And then when I got, it was an iPhone six. So whenever that, and it was, Mm -hmm. they were probably already on iPhone seven when I got the iPhone (laughs) six, but, um, I immediately like gave it to my wife and (laughs) so I didn't even really have it. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So I got away for a a couple more years without a cell phone. And then I didn't ever even have like a flip phone either. So I, I was just like, I have email. I have an office phone. I have a house phone, but don't want another phone <laughs> okay. my, was my view. But then when I started going to Mozambique, I, so that was in 2018 was the first trip. So yeah, like in the spring of 2018, I ended up getting a cell phone so that um, no, actually no, it was, it was the spring of 2019, my second trip. I didn't take a cell phone on my first trip. Oh, uh, that's, and I was, so uh, yeah, that was pretty funny. So I did not have a cell phone. I had an i. We had an iPod. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, I had done this before, like traveling around. You know, when I go to hotels, go to conferences, and stay in a hotel, and they have Wi-Fi, I can use my iPod, and then I can text my wife, right? So yep. I thought, you well, know, I'll just take the iPod, and I'll download WhatsApp, and we'll just communicate. But there was like no cell phone service at all, and no Wi-Fi where we went. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had a grad student. Victoria came came with us. So I, I went with a colleague in the department and then we we took a grad student. So my my colleague had an old iPhone also. So she had an iPhone, I had an iPod, <laughs> which was almost completely useless. And then Victoria had like a you know, Samsung Galaxy 9 or something, you know, like a new Samsung. Yeah. And and she was just like calling up and talking to her boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> Every day, like in the middle of the bush, yeah. I thought, "Oh gosh, you know, I'm gonna have to actually get a cell phone now." Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, before my second trip, I uh, I did get a it's a Moto, you know, it's an Android phone, <laughs> it's relatively inexpensive, but um, yeah, so that so I do have one now. What has it done to our culture? <laughs> well, you know, I'd say uh, more opportunities for distractions mm-hmm. is thing, but you know, in some ways, cell phones can be and you know, that kind of technology, technology in general can really be helpful in a lot of different kinds of projects. So there's a, a lot of um, indigenous peoples around the US and around the world are um, losing their native languages due to globalization and um, just interaction with the market. And you tend to see this in Siberia, it's, I mean, in other areas too, where like, um, you know, you've got these people, they're living out, you know, pretty distant from an urban center, but when the kids go to school and then maybe they'll go to the, a bigger town to um, go to like upper high school, or, you know, some of them even will like go to St. Petersburg and do like really four years of college or something, you know, so they're really, you know, they're kind of eyeing the competitive labor market and, you know, they want to participate in the larger society and and also they've been exposed to, you know, a lot of media from the central government. So Russian TV or whatever in the US, you know, it's, there's so many channels, right? And, that, and, you know, there are very few that are in like the native language. Now you do, in Canada, you see this in Canada, Inuit have their own TV stations. And I went to Northwest Territories about 10 years ago now, and um, there they have a lot of multilingual media. So there's, they're doing a lot there to to try and help maintain the language but in a lot of communities that are smaller or really close to an urban center there's also you know history of taking kids away from their families and putting them in boarding schools and forcing them to learn the language of the greater society which happened in the u.s it happened in canada it happened in russia it happened in australia you know so there's like long lasting generational effects Mm -hmm. of these very traumatic experiences and one of those is, you know, sort of the loss of the native language. So technology, including cell phones can be helpful in, in terms of um, helping to rejuvenate um, some of these languages. And so there are like talking dictionaries that people can use on a cell phone. They would be you know, really beneficial if like, let's say you didn't know your native language as a first language anymore. And you we're trying to learn your native language. Um, so language preservation is one thing, an area that, you know, where technology, like cell phones can be really helpful. I'd say you know, we're definitely, you know, we have a lot of different ways of uh, being connected now. And, you know, that's, that's something that's new. I mean, you know, in the past, it took a lot longer for information to travel across, you know, a population. And you know, I just, I think of Siberia, again, you know, they pass a, in the 1800s or whenever, you know, they'd pass a law in, in moscow you know in 1825 and you know by 1832 you know they were hearing about it in siberia
2: yeah, yeah <laughs> right so
1: i mean even with the communist revolution in 1917 soviet power didn't even didn't get established in the region where i worked until 1931. wow yeah so i mean it takes a long time whereas now i mean i'm working on a project Working on getting a project together with um, it's an interna- international group, but there's a colleague at University of Michigan, a colleague, a colleague at University of Arkansas, and then we've got colleagues in Norway and in France and in Russia. And so we and we actually had a project meeting this morning at eight o'clock in the morning, and we were you know on Zoom with people in in northern Siberia,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in you know all across the eleven time zones, <laughs> <laughs> working on a working on a project proposal. So. Yeah. I mean, that, that's something that totally new, you know, it helps make things more, makes work more efficient in some ways, but then you tend to fill up your time and you get busier. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's almost like you're running in place to some extent. It's true. It's true. But yeah. So I think, you know, our society, we, we have all this connectedness now, but we're not really used to it yet. We don't really have the, really the institutions to really deal with it fully. I would say
0: yeah. Yep. This throughout this whole summer, you know, politics have been an absolute mess. And I kept finding myself wishing I lived I remember reading that I I'm probably going to get some words mixed up so you can correct me, but like in the feudal system, I'd heard that it that sometimes those Well, a lot of times those people out, you know, away from the main city, I am messing up really bad, but they they would never actually see the king in their lifetime. And I was thinking, how cool would it be to live so that I didn't even know who the president was, didn't care, didn't know what he looked like, and I could just live (laughs) my life, just work my land and move on. I Uh, wish for that many times this summer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's... uh... i I, I totally get you and uh, that's one cool thing about anthropology so like when i was doing field work in siberia you know i would be out there for you know three months or nine months actually i'll give you an example i it was i was out in siberia in 2001 and um i had gone out on a hunting trip with um this guy boris konnovich who was he was sort of the my adopted father you know basically he was the he and his wife kind of had, took, had taken me in and I, I stayed with them every time I went out there. So he was in his upper 60s. He took me out to his, one of his hunting cabins, a place called Boronok, which in Dolgan means the wolf place. A boro is a wolf. Nice. The wolf place. And it's this little rise overlooking this river called the Dudipta River, which is this massive river. <laughs> and um, they do fishing there and they also hunt caribou when the caribou are crossing the river. So um, the caribou crossing, they, they kind of gather up on one shore. So the lead caribou kind of leads them into the water and then they, they start swimming and they slow down. Right. And so that's, that's a kind of an opportunity for hunters. So, so we get back and, uh, it was September 12th of
0: 2001,
1: Of 2001. And uh, my, his son, friend of mine, Va- Vanya, came up to me. I, I call Vanya the Arnold Schwarzenegger of Ustavahm. the Arnold Schwarzenegger of this community. Because he has a he had a pull-up bar in his house next to his hunting cabin. And he was just like a really big guy, <laughs> really <Yeah>. strong guy. <laughs> anyway, he came up to me, really nice guy. Um, he came up to me and he said, the war has started. And it was, it was 9-11. mm mm-hmm. I hadn't heard about it. I didn't hear about it until like a day later when I got back to the village.
0: Yeah.
1: And they had, there was no TV in the village at that time because like the village hadn't paid its bill or something. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> they had two channels and uh, the village hadn't paid its bill. So no one had any channels, but they turned it on so that I could see it. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty incredible. You know, all the Russian news media, they were like, you know, talking about different scenarios of like who possibly had done it. So, and then when I was walking around the village, people were like, they were actually really you know, giving me their condolences and just saying really nice things, which was, it, would, it helped me make it through that, through that time. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so yeah, you know, with, as an anthropologist, you can kind of get out far enough where you can be isolated from the news. i sort of my point, but uh <laughs> That has its pluses and minuses, right? When there are like major world events happening.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but sometimes it is nice to escape, that's for sure.
0: Okay, here's a big question. Does anthropology encourage moral relativism?
1: Moral relativism. So there is a concept in anthropology called cultural relativism. And cultural relativism is sort of the opposite of ethnocentrism. So I mentioned ethnocentrism earlier. So in ethnocentrism, the definition is that it's uh, kind of the belief that, you know, your own culture is, is the superior or the best way of doing doing something. So um, cultural relativism, the idea is that to, to view other cultures in their own terms rather than your terms. Sure. So if you're you know coming from your own society and you know most societies have this kind of idea that somehow you know what we do is the correct way of doing things they look down upon other societies that do things differently they have different spirits that they believe in or they have different you know economic practices and and the natural tendency is like to go in and let's oh, we got to change them we got to make them better Mm
2: -hmm. because we're better Mm
1: -hmm. okay that's the ethnocentric viewpoint so to be an anthropologist you really have to be culturally relative you have to view other societies in their terms to understand what makes them tick and what is important for them and you can't do that without communicating with them and really living with them and kind of going through what they do in their lives so that's a method we call participant observation where we <clears throat> we it's not just like going and doing an interview so i mean I would go and uh, like i said i would go out hunting um, and fishing with these people and i'd go out with them for you know their cabin is like 100 kilometers from the village you're not going to be like going back and forth
2: yeah
1: (laughs) and we're talking a couple hour helicopter ride to the nearest city Mm -hmm. um in the middle of the tundra so you're out there for a while and then you leave and go further out there and you're like hanging around with like these brothers for three weeks at their hunting cabin you talk a lot about a lot of stuff, yeah. <laughs> and you can really get to, but it's not just talking to them. It's like going out and picking through a meter of ice to put it, you know, check your fish nets every day. And you know, you got to take your turn with the ice pick, and uh, learning how to butcher a caribou in the proper way, according to that culture, is it's a very caring way and you save everything and you use utilize everything. And that's, you know, in contrast to, you know, stuff I've seen in the U S where, you know, a lot of things are wasted. So that's, that's kind of the idea of cultural relativism, where the idea is to basically view the culture in their own terms. Now, there are situations there's sort of, you know, this is one topic we, I cover in, um, Sort of an intro to cultural anthropology class. You know, is are there limits to cultural relativism? So mm-hmm. I mean, there could be. You could be working with a society, let, let's say, where certain individuals are enslaving other individuals, or something like you know, something that's really just sort of goes against universal human rights. Mm-hmm. And so there are some situations like this. For example, uh, the practice of female um, genital circumcision in um, sub-Saharan Africa, where Mm -hmm. anthropologists, they're different. There are kind of several different versions of it. And there's some versions of that practice that are very bad for female health. Mm
2: -hmm. And so
1: there are anthropologists working with those societies to help them understand the negative impacts of those practices and try and steer them towards some of the less Damaging versions of that practice, so to speak. Sure. <laughs> so that's that's maybe an example of a limit to cultural relativism.
0: Yeah. There's this podcast called Stuff You Should Know, and I remember they did an episode on a very remote. I can't even remember all the specifics. I just remember the impression it left on me. It was about some remote tribe. I can't even tell you what continent, but that they were cannibalistic, and they but they were being really like, well, you know, it's just their culture. And I'm like, yeah, but they're eating other people. So I feel like that's okay to say it's bad.
1: Yeah. Interesting about cannibalism. So cannibalism is, I mean, people like to talk about cannibalism a lot. (laughs) and um, uh, Because it's really, I mean, that's, that's, that's really nasty, right? You know, I mean, it's really, it's kind of like zombies and, you know, witches and things, you know, that it's really evil, you know, to eat other people. So, I mean, this, this is something that I learned actually when I, in my undergraduate at Arizona State, my um, PhD, my undergrad advisor, sorry, not my PhD, but my undergrad advisor worked in Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. And in New Guinea, this is an area that where there, where a lot of, where there's a lot of talk about cannibalism. And actually there's a lot of, there's actually, there's been some anthropological work that has looked at that and there's there's a kind of disease it's like Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease. It's a prion disease so prions are a kind of protein that if you consume them they will cause like irreparable brain damage and mm-hmm. will cause you to basically your brain to deteriorate. Um, they're sort of a mutated protein and they're really hard to destroy actually there we had prion problems in our food supply in North America, you know, 20, 25 years ago, because they were feeding animal parts to the animals. And so that was causing those prions to propagate. So um, there are, there are populations in New Guinea that have prion diseases. And um, it was uh, proposed that, that it got, that the, the prion diseases were spread by cannibalism. Because, I mean, it, it seems kind of like a low-hanging fruit uh, argument, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, my advisor um, actually argued against that because, and he, having lived with people in New Guinea who were, they were actually had an incredibly high homicide rate where he worked, and it was due to witch witch killings and cannibal and killings of cannibals. So oh. people were accused of being cannibals. And then they were killed. And they had a, an, yeah. And and so he studied this for his dissertation back in the early 1960s. And uh, so he um, discovered that that it wasn't that people were eating other people. Because so if you looked at who got the disease, it was women and children who got the disease.
0: Hmm.
1: if And whereas who eats most of the protein? The men. Yeah, exactly. The men. So if it was... If they were eating other people, it would, the men would have been getting the disease, mm-hmm. but they were not. It was the women and children. So he looked at their funeral practices. So they have a traditional practice that we refer to as ancestor reverence in, in anthropology. So, um, you know, ancestors play a really important role in their religion, basically and like direct ancestors like grandpa, you know, grandpa's on the shelf here, you know, and he's watching (laughs) you. Uh, But they actually grandpa is literally on the shelf because what they did was they would bury someone, they buried them vertically. And then a few weeks later, the women would exhume the skull of, so it had, you know, the flesh had been eaten off by this is tropical forest. Right. And so, um, you know, the flesh had been, had been defleshed at that point, but, maybe not fully. And so they, um, the women were getting rotten, you know, human remains on them and they don't have, you know, this was the 1960s. They were living, you know, in the bush and they didn't have very, they didn't have any kind of sanitation. They didn't have any kind of, you know, way to sterilize anything. And so they would take, you know, grandpa's skull and, you know, decorate it, put clay on it, or, you know, decorate it and put, grandpa on the shelf. And, you know, that would be part of, you know, an honor, an honorable kind of section of their house. But in the process, the women were getting, you know, the remains on their hands and then they would like touch their eyes and their nose. And yeah. they would also like, you know, wipe the nose of their, of their kids. Yeah. And that is how it was transmitted. So there's a lot of talk about cannibalism and it's because, you know, New Guinea has a lot of different languages. They have, You know, a lot of tribes that live in, it's a very mountainous place. And so people are living next to people they don't necessarily know that well. They maybe don't understand them that well because the languages, they've been there a long time and the languages have evolved in different directions. So like when my advisor, Lyle Steadman, went out there in the 1960s, he was a a grad student at um, Australian National University. And he heard a news report that there were these people living in trees in new Guinea, so like i gotta go there and so he went there <laughs> and uh, he flew into the, like the closest place he could get so they, they there was like a patrol that had gone through there and that was the first white people that those people had ever seen so he uh flew into like the nearest place he could fly and he had to like walk to this tribe and the people in this town where he flew into were telling him you don't want to go there those people are cannibals mm-hmm. <laughs> right mm-hmm. so everybody is a cannibal because they're an enemy of somebody.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah. They just pick the grossest thing they can think of and say they're that's how that.
1: They de- right. That's how they demean their enemies. Mm-hmm. And, it make, and it's easier to kill an enemy if they are subhuman. Yeah. It's part of the ethnocentric complex. Yep. That's done everywhere. Yeah. We demean our enemies, dehumanize them.
0: Yeah, we even see that in America, you know. The worst thing that American can be called as a racist so you just do something I don't like well racist and now I don't have to treat you very well because you're the worst uh-huh. thing that we have
1: right even if you're not
0: yeah <laughs> uh how much more time do you have
1: um I I can go another you know 10-15 minutes if you like
0: sweet okay when was music invented
1: oh wow that's a good one <laughs> You know, there are probably a long time ago, there actually are some primates that do rhythmic sorts of things with rocks. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's music, but <laughs> <laughs> they like throw rocks against trees repetitively you know, yeah. for no reason. Right. Yeah. At least as far as we know. So the interesting thing about music is that it seems like it's an activity that I mean, it doesn't have like a clear material sort of benefit, immediate benefit, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, it's sort of more of a recreational sort of thing.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, We like to listen to, we like music. So music, if you look across cultures, music is usually done in a group. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And it's also sort of a lot of times related to dancing. Music and dancing are kind of pretty close together. And the other thing about it is that there's usually some kind of rhythm, right? There's some sort of theme that's keeping those people together. So a friend of mine, a friend of mine from grad school uh, wrote a paper on this actually, and uh, proposed that, that music is a way that people like coordinate their activities. And so it's a way for people to calibrate with each other and create connections. And that that has social benefits that are possibly seen in a number of different areas. That can be seen in another different area. A number of different areas. So let's say you know your Pacific island, and you um, there's a lot of inter-island trade that goes along. You know, and there was a lot of inter-island expansion actually in history in the South Pacific. But that's really dangerous, right? I mm-hmm. mean, they're going in a deep sea, you know, expedition on um, you know wooden canoes there's not a lot of safety equipment or maybe traditionally there wasn't. And so it's relatively dangerous. And so being able to have like a group of people who can coordinate their activities really well together would be a real benefit for sure. Rather than like having someone say, Oh, screw you. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And then they capsize. And (laughs) 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 so, um, That's sort of the general hypothesis. So, uh, yeah, probably tens or hundreds of thousands of years.
0: Yeah. That's an interesting idea. You know, music is so incredibly spiritual in its essence. And Uh it really does connect you to people. Like, I love going to concerts just because you can be surrounded with, I don't know, up to 100,000 people. And I've heard that even in choirs that when you're singing – the same, like in sync, sorry, when you're in sync, that your heartbeat and stuff will start, everything will synchronize. And so it's just such a unifying experience. Exactly. It's pretty cool. Yeah.
1: And there's, I think there's, yes, the psychological and physiological aspects of that. And that points to, you know, that this idea that it's an adaptation, Mm -hmm. that, that it's not just kind of of something that someone learned or something invented and someone invented that it has this sort of a biological connection and that's that's an example of a universal that i was talking
2: of, of mm-hmm. what i was talking
1: about earlier not to say that it's genetically determined but there is a biological component of it and that it serves a purpose yeah. in our society yeah that's a great question
0: so this is one i like to throw around with my friends a lot just to kind of see what people think are important what is the most important invention in your opinion?
1: The most important invention. Well, to speak frankly, I would say the control of fire. Oh, that is an invention or you know, the technology around being able to control fire was an invention that, you know, set our ancestors on a path that we've been on for half a million years.
0: Yeah, it seriously changes food, and more. It changes
1: exactly. It changes food. Being able to cook food. If we were not able to cook food, let's say if we ate a diet like gorillas, we'd be we'd have to eat something like 18 hours a day straight in order to get the calories (laughs) that we need. Our jaws
0: would be massive. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, there were there were some you know there were some. you know, cousins of ours back, you know, yeah. four million years ago, the robust Australopithecines—they had, you know, huge jaw muscles and they had these sagittal crests on their, you know, they had huge jaw muscles and muscle attachments around their heads.
0: Wow! Yeah, they
1: probably did not cook. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, when so, would you say fire—the control of fire started?
1: Well, I think there's there's pretty good evidence about a half a million years ago. Yeah, could have gone back a little further than that, but I mean, there's evidence in caves that goes back that far. Wow.
0: Yeah. So interesting. I wish I had asked that sooner so we could talk about it more. Oh, what in the world is up with Easter Island?
1: <laughs> yeah. So Easter Island is, um, <clears throat> an interesting, so, you know, that's an indigenous, that was an indigenous, you know, Polynesian society that where they, you know, overused their resources and led, led to drastic population decline. So I mean, working with indigenous people, and if you look at it, you know, look at the environments of indigenous people around the world, in general, they have a lot greater biodiversity than non-indigenous. So, I mean, in general, indigenous peoples are really good stewards of their lands.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It's not, you know, a guarantee, right? And so in that, and with Easter Island, you know, they had a complex society, kind of their, so a complex society has different ranks. It has some more structure to it. There's some specialization to it. So that was a complex society. It was probably hierarchical. They probably had chiefs. They might have had different chiefs on that island. They were in some kind of competition with one another, like a lot of Polynesian societies. They were really successful for a while, but you know they spent a lot of effort in um, signaling. So you know all of those the statues. I don't remember the actual name of them. But, you know, these huge megalith monolithic statues that they would quarry them. And then they were, you know, weighed tons and they had to bring them to the coast. And there's a lot of effort. And this is probably related to, you know, their religion and, you know, kind of honoring their ancestors and things like that. But there's a lot of effort spent on that. And meanwhile, you know, their food supply, they kept using more and more to produce and you know, they had overpop- probably overpopulated and then they overused their resource base. And then they, I guess they either left or they didn't, uh, I mean, there still are some indigenous Easter Islanders, but they, you know, most of them are, the population declined really, really significantly. So, I mean, that's something that, I mean, that's a, a lesson for everybody. And that's one of the things that, you know, I'm, we have, you know, 7 billion people on the planet and becoming like a little island, right? Mm-hmm. And it is a little little speck in the, in the universe. And if we don't care for the planet, we're going to be in serious trouble. Mm -hmm. And, and so we need to learn more from the lessons. We need to learn some lessons from, you know, past peoples and come up with a more sustainable economy, uh, more circular economy, more recycling, more, you know, less energy intensive, a lot of things. But, you know, this is going to be one of the major challenges for the next 50 years is you know, re reorienting (laughs) Mm -hmm. because even during COVID, I just saw something on the news. The the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere went up, even though. Did it really? Yeah. Even though we were on lockdown and all that. Yeah. So the, the juggernaut of, you know, the industrial economy is just got a lot of what we call path dependency, you know, so we're on a path, we're dependent on it. And it's really hard to move it from that path. But we hope, I would hope that it doesn't take a catastrophe, a real, a really bad catastrophe, to, to you know, nudge us off that path. That yeah. we have enough intelligence that we can you know, make some smart decisions and, and reorient.
0: Yeah, I expected it to make a pretty big difference, especially back in March. I thought, huh, nobody's driving. I wonder if we're going to see something. But apparently we didn't.
1: Yeah, it so there was you know a temporary drop, but the you know for the year it didn't significantly yeah. drop. Gotcha. Which is kind of a bummer. But I mean I think one thing that you know we were, you know, all the closures and everything, you know, people did, you know, made it, you know, it, I mean I think it opened a lot of eyes on maybe what some things that could be done, you know, some ways of shifting behavior that you know, if if done over a long term, that could have a net net effect. But I mean, there are I mean, there's just a lot of stuff about the amount of products that we consume and the the way energy is produced, and it's just you know there's a lot that needs to needs to change. Yeah, and there are good stories. There are good stories. I'm working with a group that they've got a, a project in Kenya where they um, it's actually a Boise based. B Corp. They're a benefits corporation. What they do is they work with subsistence farmers in Kenya. And um, so these, these people, um, they're kind of like the people in Mozambique, you know, they cook on an open fire and that takes a lot of wood Mm -hmm. and it releases a lot of carbon dioxide. And so, and it creates a lot of smoke, right. And they're breathing that in. So there's health issues related to this too. So this, this company is called Eco2Librium. They make a ceramic, it's a really, you know, simple technology. They make it locally in Kenya and they subsidize it with carbon credits from Europe. So it's actually cheaper for people to purchase in Kenya and it reduces the fuel consumption by 50%.
0: Wow, significant.
1: And it's, yeah, so it's good for reducing CO2 and it helps to preserve the last bits of of a tropical rainforest.
0: Are there any last things you'd like to mention? Before I go to my final four questions,
1: uh, no, no, okay. go ahead. Okay.
0: <laughs> I ask these from everybody so you okay. can give it as much time as you feel they warrant. So do you prefer the office or parks and Rec? <laughs> uh,
1: that's good. Well, I, you know i I've only seen a couple of parks and Recs, but I think I prefer the office.:
0: Gotcha. Okay. That's what most people say. How familiar are you with the Bible?
1: Um, I'm uh, somewhat familiar.
0: Somewhat? Basically. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in Genesis chapter one through 11, this these are all the stories like through creation to the Tower of Babel to the flood. Yeah. Uh, do, you, so, do you think that that's legend or history?
1: Well, you know, I think in, I mean, there's there's probably aspects of both actually. With Adam and Eve, that's a creation story that, you know, is a metaphor for, you know, and actually the, the whole creation story in the Bible is a metaphor for a lot of time. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, that, that part of it, I would say is more on the, I don't know if I would say the legend side, but I would just, I would, you know, and we call that an anthropology uh, creation myth.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: every society has a creation myth and they vary a lot. Um, some of them, you know, might sound really ridiculous to, you know, a, uh, you know, white, you know, American kind of middle American. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so for example, in the one in Siberia, the people I worked with in Siberia, the creation story is this: where the first, the earth is all water, and and then the loon ancestor appeared, and the loon ancestor dives to the bottom of the water and brings up the muck brings up muck from the bottom of the water and puts it on a. brings up a rock too brings up a rock and the muck puts the muck on the rock and the muck become and the rock become land Mm -hmm. and everything that is ever lives the seed of it is in that muck so we all come from you know, the muck from the bottom of the ocean. And if you, you know, so again, that's a metaphor.
2: Yeah. And it's
1: actually, if you look at, you know, the evolution of life, that is probably a pretty good metaphor, (laughs) a pretty good, you know, synopsis of what happened over, you know, billions of years. Yeah. Early, well, maybe not the loon part, but so um, (laughs) with the muck part. And then, you know, but as far as like the biblical flood, for example, there, you know, there are archeological remains at the bottom of the Black Sea. And so at some point, it's possible that, you know, with sea level rise due to global warming, there was due to human activity, you know, back, you know, because humans have been burning stuff, as I said, Mm -hmm. for a while, you know, and, you know, we've been burning stuff for, you know, half a million years and um, that has accumulated in the environment. And with the end of the ice age, we know that sea level, you know, went up about at least a couple of meters in some spots. If you look at like Gibraltar and the Bosphorus, I mean, these are areas that used to have rivers, but mm-hmm. now it's, you know, the, the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. It seems pretty likely that with sea level rise at some point that the Black Sea was flooded. And that's right near the Middle East where, you know, biblical, mm-hmm. where all that stuff happened. And so that part of it might be more historical. hmm Sea level, sea level rise is pretty amazing. I mean, there used to be, so the area that's to the east of the British Isles. So the area kind of between the British Isles and Scandinavia, Denmark, that was all land 10,000 years ago. <laughs> there were hunter-gatherers or archaeological sites at the bottom. I mean, it's not that deep there. Mm-hmm. It's like 50 meters deep. So actually we've had a lot of sea level. So there's sea level rise and there's also when glaciers melt, you get isostatic rebound so the land rises once the glaciers are off but so there's a lot of kind of moving parts but so there was and i I participated in a paper where we looked at an archaeological site on southwestern sweden and this is a site that hunter gatherers from europe used to go to back when the north sea was still land and um so there were care this was a time you know it was still before the end of the ice age. And it was a time when there were still caribou in Europe and it was a lot different environment. Um, So hunter-gatherers used to go up and there was a river. It was a very uh, fast running river that went between kind of the area uh, to the east of, basically between Denmark and Sweden, right? I mean, so that, right now that's the Baltic, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but that used to be a river. And so people, you know, used to travel up to that point and on, on foot but then they at some point they made it across and they started establishing um, sites on sweden this was still in when there were still glaciers in um scandinavia but eventually as the glaciers retreated you know they they populated all of scandinavia so we looked at this site it was 10 twelve thousand years old and kind of looked at it at you know in comparison to kind of what people are doing today who live further north so Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, definitely a mix of two of -hmm. the two.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. I hear this thrown around, but I don't know if it's true. You'd be the most the person with the most authority to answer. But people say that there's a flood myth in most cultures. Is that true?
1: You know, I uh, when you say most cultures, that's. It, it depends how you count them, right? And so that it gets kind of tricky. There, there's something called Galton's problem, and that's there are a lot of cultures in certain areas, like New Guinea, but a couple hundred cultures, right? And so, so there might be certain areas that are overrepresented. Do you count, you know, Europe as one, you know, Euro-American as one culture or 40 cultures? It's sure. Yeah. So I have also heard that there are other societies that have a flood myth. So that mean you know, <laughs> that's something that has been talked about a lot. I think it's possible given there were some times when there were pretty massive changes due to the end of the ice age. So even in North America when you know like even like in this area, you know this area, the Treasure Valley used to be a lake, mm-hmm. right? lake idaho and at some point that ice dam on what became the snake river broke there was you know when when the glaciers melted there was an ice dam and when it broke it released all that water and now we have all these canyons along the snake and columbia due to that we have the boulders down by the snake river you know at celebration park near melba Mm -hmm. um, as a result of all that water and so I yeah, I think that the end of the ice age, you know, the people that were living then, they saw a lot of really catastrophic you know changes that we just probably couldn't even imagine.
0: Yeah. So, about climate change. Mhm. So, the earth has been through some pretty catastrophic things and has appeared to, re- to recover. In your opinion, is there is there reason to believe that that the recover part won't happen again. It'll just be another catastrophe without the recovery.
1: Well, you know, life has a way, right? But is that life going to contain humans or not? Or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is the big question, right? So the dinosaurs were wiped out and mostly, right? We've got, you know, a few dinosaurs here and there, right? You know, birds are yeah. kind of related to dinosaurs. We've got some reptiles, but You know, it's not the age of the dinosaurs anymore. Mm -hmm. You you know, our species has become pretty specialized and we are very dependent on each other and we're very dependent on, you know, trade. We're very dependent on specializations for our society. And so if there is a major catastrophe and these things are disrupted, a lot of people are going to be affected and not, you know, not, not know what to do. I mean, we can kind of see that with the pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, people didn't know what to do. I mean, there was like sh- sh- toilet paper shortages, which is just, I mean, that reminded me of the end of the Soviet. So I first time I went to the Soviet union was in 1988 when I was an undergrad and uh, I was there for a semester. And so I saw the breakup of the Soviet Union. I worked at, a, worked at a company before I went to grad school in Washington DC and took a few trips to Russia right at the end of the Soviet union. And, so I saw the end of the Soviet Union and, you know, people were hoarding sugar. I mean, it, you know, they would mm-hmm. have like 200 kilograms of sugar in their foyer <laughs> of their house.
2: Yeah. You know, so it was
1: kind of like the whole toilet paper and hand sanitizer thing here. I just, I never thought I'd see, I think, and I never thought, you know, that would happen at the U.S., but it did, at least for a short period of time. <laughs> we weren't down to sugar, at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. We're the thing about being really specialized is we're more fragile.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're not general, you know, if you were a generalist, so I, you know, the people in Mozambique I worked with during the hard times, which is for them is in toward the end of the year before the rainy season starts. So like this time of year this is the hard time. It's hot. It's in the Southern hemisphere. So it's really hot. They harvested their crops, you know, in June, they've been living off their crops. There's nothing. The whole place is dry. So what they do is they forage. they know what roots and things they can eat that aren't poisonous, so they do some foraging and so that helps them through the dry times, but I mean, those people, they make their own houses out of, you know, mud and thatch and they are all their own food and they, you know, get all their own fuel that they need. And, you know, they would probably, they're a little bit more resilient. They're more generalists. Yeah. Compared to us, you know, we were very dependent on our, t- on our technology. So it's just something to consider, right? Is, you know, how, how, what kind of knowledge do we need in order to, you know, be able to be more flexible in case of an emergency? But on the other hand, or let's say alongside that, we need to, you know, think about the negative externalities. So the, so basically our, you know, the industrialized economies are producing all of this waste and that's called, that's an externality, right? No one's paying for it. Mm-hmm. We produce all this carbon, we produce all this plastic, we make all these changes to the landscape and that is affecting biodiversity. It's affecting the planet's ability to absorb the carbon, you know, you know the plastic, and know it's gonna be around for thousands of years. It's becoming integrated into marine life We don't know the health effects of that. So there are all these things that we're doing that, you know, we're not really paying attention to it, right? We're just kind of doing it because it's the cheapest thing to do. Yeah. Right? And so, (laughs) and that's uh, maybe one of our most primitive instincts. (laughs) I mean, we're we're kind of running our society on our most primitive kind of cost benefit decision-making in an immediate time frame, and not thinking into the future at all. And, uh, so we, that we need to real, you know, we need to recognize that and look at how different, more traditional societies, you know, can live in a way that is more uh, harmonious with their environment, you know, and not necessarily give up every you know, I'm not saying give up all the conveniences. There are lots of examples. Of things you can do that are more, you know, less have less of an impact on the environment. So that's we really need to start doing that, but also, you know, at the same time, recognize that you know, the more we depend on technology, the more fragile our society becomes to disasters.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think about this a lot when it comes to what you're saying you've worded it a lot better but I think like you know it it helps our society run a lot better that my husband drives a forklift at work and he helps shift food out and he works in a freezer and that is just awesome and we need that but I mean if something goes to hell the guy who's able to who has like a blacksmithing shop he's going to be the king now, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Suddenly a forklift is not, like, the the most practical skill in the world. Yeah. So. Um, I guess we'll move on. Okay. <laughs> Do you think that there are aliens?
1: Well, you know, there may be at some time, but, you know, space is so big. Yeah. <laughs> it seems... It seems like it's, it's pretty, pretty likely that there's life elsewhere, you Now, whether there's intelligent life or not, and it, at the same time that we exist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there are definitely some cool life forms on Earth, like um, tardigrades, for example, mm-hmm. this really small animal that. And it looks like an alien almost. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. <laughs>
0: Fun. All right. Final one. Who or what inspires you to be your best self?
1: My wife and my kids. But mainly my wife <laughs> inspires <Yep>. me.
0: <laughs> How long have you been married?
1: Uh, I've been married. We've been married uh, nine years.
0: Well, wow, that's awesome. Well, this yeah. has been really fun. I wish that I could just ask you all my questions, but I guess that'll have to wait till I can get another guy like you. All right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, you can uh, hit me up again in a few months uh, for part two.
0: Sure. <laughs> yeah, that'd be really fun. Well, thank you for giving oh. me your evening and yes. enjoy what's left of it.
1: Thanks. You're welcome. I enjoyed chatting. Bye. Bye-bye.